Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, joined this time by my shitty little rat dog, Jack, who has not made an appearance here on the podcast in, oh, I don't know, several episodes, and he seems just delighted to be here now, laying on his side as he is, his ears perked up a little bit at the mention of his name. Now his head has gone back down to the pillow and his eyes are closing. Now, I cannot possibly catch Jack-Jack up on all the comings and goings and doings and triumphs and tragedies that have befallen our characters in Jude the Obscure since his last appearance, and I know that he does not consume many podcasts. He likes This American Life, he likes uh, WTF, but obviously we have to be careful of the language on some of those because he is still a very young dog, and we do not want to corrupt him. So Jack, all I can tell you is that you know how... Uh, earlier in the series, we were saying bad tidings are coming to Jude and to Sue and to everybody. Well, those tidings have arrived. And last time, we have seen a change in the character of Sue Bridehead. She has taken to blaming herself for the deaths of her children, as any mother would probably do, and as any father would do, Jude has also assigned himself some of the blame, and their reactions to it have been curious. Well, Jude's not so much. Jude has continued kind of plodding along in his slow way and trying to process these 
terrible, terrible doings in the way of Jude, which is to say he lets everything kind of settle into him and get fully absorbed into his being and blood before coming to any conclusions. Sue, on the other hand, has decided that she needs some sort of punishment or she needs rather all the punishment. She needs to suffer in the worst possible ways for her to have any chance of redemption at all in this lifetime, which perhaps will lead to a redemption in the next. And so she has turned kind of towards the church, but in a very handmaid's tale sort of way. She has become, or she's leaning towards, piety beyond piety, a kind of orthodoxy, an Old Testament orthodoxy, you know, a very kind of brutal look at uh, religion. And she wants to suffer. She talks about being pricked with pins, you know, for forevermore, like a voodoo doll. And so Jude has suggested to her that they get married because, of course, they never did. She is the bride head, of course. She is not the bride. And Sue has said no, that she she feels in her heart increasingly that she belongs to Richard Phillotson. And that's kind of where we left it when there was a knock at the door. Is Mr. Folly here? And the voice was Arabella's. So I'll pick up. He formally requested her to come in, and she sat down in the window bench where they could distinctly see her outline against the light. But no characteristic that enabled them to estimate her general aspect and air. Yet something seemed to denote that she was not quite so comfortably circumstanced, nor so bouncingly attired, as she had been during Cartlett's lifetime. The three attempted an awkward conversation about the tragedy of which Jude had felt it to be his duty to inform her immediately, though she had never replied to his letter. "'I've just come from the cemetery,' she said. "'I inquired and found the child's grave.' I couldn't come to the funeral. Thank you for inviting me all the same. I read all about it in the papers, and I felt I wasn't wanted. No, I couldn't come to the funeral, repeated Arabella, who seemingly utterly unable to reach the ideal of a catastrophic manner, fumbled with iterations. But I am glad I found the grave. As tis your trade, Jude, you'll be able to put up a handsome stone to him. It's funny. It's not funny. I mean, it's not funny at all, but utterly unable to reach the ideal of a catastrophic manner, meaning like there are certain people in this world who are unable to express uh, sympathy, I guess. It's not quite empathy, but sympathy when tragedy strikes. Um, And we have seen images of our erstwhile president in uh, the past couple weeks, going to the site of some shootings, El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio, and seeming uh, utterly unable to reach the ideal of a catastrophic manner, instead posing with his thumbs up and his bright, stupid grin plastered across 
the photographs. I myself have sometimes wondered if I am one of these people who seems unable to reach a catastrophic manner when, when I, I just I have a hard time when there is tragedy to be confronted, to know what to say, what to do, what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. And I often feel myself kind of fumbling and inarticulate. I think ultimately one of the best things you can do is to be there and listen and not make it about yourself. But I can easily see Arabella as being one of these people as well. And she says, you'll be able to put up a handsome stone to him. I shall put up a headstone, said Jude drearily. He was my child, and naturally I feel for him. And of course, she doesn't. And Jude says, I hope so. We all did. The others that weren't mine, I didn't feel so much for, as was natural. (laughs) I mean, there's no point in adding that, Arabella. There's really no point in adding that. Like, that's understood. I had often wished I had mine with me, continued Mrs. Cartlett. Perhaps it wouldn't have happened then. But of course, I didn't wish to take him away from your wife. I am not his wife, came from Sue. The unexpectedness of her words struck Jude silent. Oh, I beg your pardon, I'm sure, said Arabella. I thought you were. Jude had known from the quality of Sue's tone that her new and transcendental views lurked in her words, but all except their obvious meaning was naturally missed by Arabella. The latter, after evincing that she was struck by Sue's avowal, recovered herself and went on to talk with placid bluntness about her boy, for whom, though in his lifetime she had shown no care at all, she now exhibited a ceremonial mournfulness that was apparently sustaining to the conscience. She alluded to the past, and in making some remark, appealed again to Sue. There was no answer. Sue had invisibly left the room. She said she was not your wife, resumed Arabella in another voice. Why should she do that? I cannot inform you, said Jude shortly. She is, isn't she? She once told me so. I don't criticize what she says. Ah, I see. Well, my time is up. I'm staying here tonight and thought I could do no less than call after our mutual affliction. I am sleeping at the place where I used to be barmaid and tomorrow I go back to Alfredston. Father has come home again and I am living with him. He's returned from Australia, said Jude, with languid curiosity. That's a kind of beautiful phrase, languid curiosity. The thing that falls out of your mouth, though you don't really care. <laughs> but the the thought and the utterance come together. And so after you have verbalized the question, you realize even as the words are falling out of your face that you don't give a shit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lovelier way. Uh, languid curiosity is a lovelier phrase than that, of course, but that's what I, how I interpret it. So he asks you, so he's back. Yes, couldn't get on there, had a rough time of it. Mother died of dis, what do you call it, in the hot weather. And father and two of the young ones have just got back. He's got a college, cottage near the old place, and for the present, I'm keeping house for him. Jude's former wife had maintained a stereotyped manner of strict good breeding, even now that Sue was gone, and limited her stay to a number of minutes that should accord with the highest respectability. 
When she had departed, Jude, much relieved, went to the stairs and called Sue, feeling anxious as to what had become of her. There was no answer, and the carpenter who kept the lodgings said she had not come in. Okay, so every time she leaves the scene, every single time now that she is not within his eyesight, I worry that she is dead. I worry that she has taken her own life or done something tragic. Uh, There's really only, there's two things she could do right now. I don't think she's going to kill herself because I think she thinks that would be the easy way and she deserves to suffer here on earth. So what I think is now when she's left the room, she's just gone uh, drudging back to Phillotson, right? She's just, she's just going with her little bindle in hand to Phillotson to beg him to take her back so that she can suffer at his side and he can be miserable with her, I guess. Although Phillotson, last we heard of him, didn't have, I don't think, a kind of fixed place of residence. He was sort of wandering the countryside himself, going through some sufferings, his own kind of Job-like quest upon him. So I don't even know that she could find him if she went a-looking for him. So let's see. Jude was puzzled and became quite alarmed at her absence, for the hour was growing late. The carpenter called his wife, who conjectured that Sue might have gone to St. Silas's church, as she often went there. Surely not at this time of night, said Jude. It is shut. She knows somebody who keeps the key and she has it whenever she wants it. <laughs> that voice just kind of came out and it was, you know, kind of Arabella. And then as, as I started reading, I was like, oh, that sounds like too much like Arabella. So I'll pitch it up a little bit. I'll pitch it up just a tiny bit. The carpenter's wife. Uh, how long has she been going on with this? Oh, some few weeks, I think. Jude went vaguely in the direction of the church, which he had never once approached since he lived out that way years before, when his young opinions were more mystical than they were now. The spot was deserted, but the door was certainly unfastened. He lifted the latch without noise, and pushing to the door behind him, stood absolutely still inside. The prevalent silence seemed to contain a faint sound, explicable as a breathing or a sobbing, which came from the other end of the building. The floor cloth deadened his footsteps as he moved in that direction through the obscurity, which was broken only by the faintest reflected nightlight from without. High overhead, Above the chancel steps, Jude could discern a huge, solidly constructed Latin cross, as large, probably, as the original it was designed to commemorate. It seemed to be suspended in the air by invisible wires. It was set with large jewels, which faintly glimmered in some weak ray caught from outside as the cross swayed to and fro in a silent and scarcely perceptible motion. Underneath, upon the floor, lay what appeared to be a heap of black clothes, and from this was repeated the sobbing that he had heard before. It was his Sue's form, prostrate on the paving. So now Jude has returned to the church, literally now, if not spiritually. And we see that it is dead inside, dead to him, 
of course, and the cross suspended in the air, barely perceptibly moving. And it seems to me that that cross, that barely perceptibly moving cross, the same size as the one upon which Jesus himself had hung, is asking a question. That slight swaying motion, not quite still, but not quite moving. And I suppose it is the same question that runs throughout the book, which is what is the place of faith here on this sordid swamp planet? How much do we put into our faith? And how is it rewarded or not? And what happens when we renounce it? And there at the bottom, a heap of black clothes, just a shape, a shroud that is Sue. And now with languid curiosity, I'm going to see how Jack-Jack is faring, and then we will be back on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, welcome back to Obscure. We've just read about Jude returning to the church, so I go on. Sue, he whispered. Something white disclosed itself. She had turned up her face. What do you want with me here, Jude? She said almost sharply. You shouldn't come. I wanted to be alone. Why did you intrude here? How can you ask, he retorted in quick reproach, for his full heart was wounded to its center at this attitude of hers towards him. Why do I come? Who has a right to come? I should like to know if I have not. I, who love you better than my own self, better, oh, far better than you have loved me. What made you leave me to come here alone? 
Don't criticize me, Jude. I can't bear it. I have often told you so. You must take me as I am. I am a wretch, broken by my distractions. I couldn't bear it when Arabella came. I felt so utterly miserable I had to come away. She seems to be your wife still, in Richard to be my husband. But they are nothing to us. Yes, dear friend, they are. I see marriage differently now. My babies have been taken from me to show this. Arabella's child-killing mine was a judgment, the right slaying the wrong. What, what shall I do? I am such a vile creature, too worthless to mix with ordinary human beings. This is terrible, said Jude, verging on tears. It is monstrous and unnatural for you to be so remorseful when you have done no wrong. Ah! <sighs> You don't know my badness. He returned vehemently, I do, every atom and dreg of it. You make me hate Christianity or mysticism or sacerdotalism. I don't know what that is, but I'll continue or whatever it may be called. If that, if it's that which has caused this deterioration in you, that a woman poet, a woman seer, a woman whose soul shone like a diamond, whom all the wise of the world would have been proud of if they could have known you, should degrade herself like this. I am glad I had nothing to do with divinity, damn glad, if it's going to ruin you in this way. You are angry, Jude, and unkind to me, and don't see how things are. Then come along home with me, dearest, and perhaps I shall. I am overburdened, and you too are unhinged just now. He put his arm round her and lifted her, but though she came, she preferred to walk without his support. I don't dislike you, Jude, she said in a sweet and imploring voice. I love you as much as ever, only I ought not to love you any more. Oh, I must not any more. So this is basically what she said to Phillotson when she left him. She's like, hey, I don't hate you. You know, I think you're a nice guy, but I don't love you. I don't love you. And I have to be with the person I love. Now she's saying to Jude, I love you, but I can't love you. You know, I feel the same way, but I can't. I ought not to love you. So I'm going to go back to the other dude. I got this dude. I got that dude. I'm going back to the other dude. And I know I won't be happy, but you know. That's my punishment. And again, we're seeing this kind of, and and look, this is consistent with her character. We've seen this throughout, a kind of narcissism that Sue has, where everything that happens in this world is about her. And we're all guilty of this to a certain degree. We all see the events of life refracted through our own prism. I get that. But I do think there's something kind of selfish about looking at tragedy and only uh, putting it through a kind of um, colander and extracting everything that isn't about you and, and only keeping the remains of what is. And in doing so, you let the things that are important run right through. Like she's, she's throwing away her relationship with Jude. She's throwing away her belief system or lack of belief system, I guess. She's throwing away her entire life now because of what remains in that little colander, which is the small guilt that she 
bears. I mean, she bears a lot of guilt, but her responsibility in it. We're all responsible for everything, you know, and we all we all have some responsibility in what happens. But, you know, Jude's right. Like, you can't take all of this on you. It happened. And, you know, he might be overselling her a little bit when, when he says all the wise of the world would have been proud of to know you. I mean, you know, that's Hardy maybe patting himself on the back a little bit. You know, hey, Shakespeare, you know, you did a real good job with Sue there. You did a real good job with Sue, and maybe you should acknowledge it to yourself in your book. Uh, And so he does. He's saying, look, this woman I created is so brilliant. Everybody should get to know her. She says, I must not love you anymore. He says, I can't own it, but I have made up my mind that I am not your wife. I belong to him. I sacramentally joined myself to him for life. Nothing can alter it. But surely we are man and wife. If ever two people were in this world, nature's own marriage, it is unquestionably, but not heaven's. Another was made for me there and ratified eternally in the church at Melchester. Sue, Sue, affliction has brought you to this unreasonable state. After converting me to your views on so many things, to find you suddenly turned to the right about like this for no reason whatever, confounding all you have formally said through sentiment merely, you root out of me what little affection and reverence I had left in me for the church as an old acquaintance. What I can't understand in you is your extraordinary blindness now to your old logic. Is it peculiar to you, or is it common to woman? Is a woman a thinking unit at all, or a fraction always wanting its integer? How you argued that marriage was only a clumsy contract, which it is. How you showed all the objections to it, all the absurdities. If two and two made four when we were happy together, surely they make four now. I can't understand it, I repeat. So Jude throwing the woman card in her face, you know, is it, what is it just you or is, are, are all ladies like this? You know, is every woman ruled by her emotion that she would turn right about all of her old logic when circumstance dictates? Is she ruled by emotion? I mean, we hear this now. We hear of the hysterical woman now that hasn't stopped. I think it's gotten better. Has it gotten better? I don't even know. I don't even know if it's gotten better. But it's the same thing. He's 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 asking the same thing. Is is a woman a thinking unit at all, or a fraction always wanting its integer? Well, look, we know he doesn't mean that. We know because, I mean, it ref- it would reflect so badly on him if that were the case. And Jude is certainly guilty of his own self absorption. You know. I mean, she was the one who persuaded him, the scholar, to abandon all that he had scholared. And now he's saying, uh, was I persuadable by a person who was not even a thinking unit? <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I don't know what I, I had questioned in the very beginning of the book, up maybe through the middle, about Hardy's feelings about women in general, because there had been no sympathetic female characters to that point. And over time... I learned to love Sue. I didn't have an immediate attraction to her the way her cousin Jude did. But over time, I came to see her as a, quoting back Hardy, woman, poet, woodman, seer, and woman whose soul shone like a diamond. 
I mean, maybe not that much, but you know, I liked her. I like her. And she is the most interesting character in the book. She just is. Jude is, in a lot of ways, a cipher for Sue's beliefs. And he, he basically admits it. And Sue, I think, is a cipher for Hardy's beliefs or lack of beliefs. Hardy, who I think probably is much more sympathetic to Sue's previous view of the world up until now. And so the tragedy is perhaps, in Hardy's mind, as much about her renouncing her old way of thinking as it is about the circumstances that allowed her to do so or that forced her to do so. And again, I don't know anything about Hardy. I really don't. But these questions must have been foremost in his mind when he was writing the book. What is the nature of faith? How much, how much trust do we place in this system that everybody else seems to subscribe to, but I can't quite wrap my head around? And what are the consequences for turning your back on it? And then he answers, the consequences are worse than you can possibly imagine. And yet it doesn't feel like a morality tale, doesn't it? it doesn't feel like Hardy is saying is, is giving a warning. It doesn't seem like he's saying, hey, don't do this. You know, don't fuck with the church, Shakespeare. It doesn't feel like that's what he's saying. It seems more like he's saying that you're trapped either way. You know, as I was saying last time, you leave the swamp planet, you end up back on the swamp planet. One way or another, you're on the swamp planet. I can't understand it. I repeat, ah, dear Jude, that's because you are like a totally deaf man observing people listening to music. You say, what are they regarding? Nothing is there, but something is. That is a hard saying from you and not a true parallel. You threw off old husks of prejudices and taught me to do it. And now you go back upon yourself. I confess I am utterly stultified in my estimate of you. Dear friend, my only friend, don't be hard with me. I can't help being as I am. I am convinced I am right, that I see the light at last. But oh, how to profit by it. Have you guys seen that video? Uh, you probably have on social media of the woman explaining Q. And she has this kind of blissfulness on her face as she is explaining the inexplicable because it is nonsense. As she's saying, you know, Q is knowledge. Q is reason. Q is logic. Q is you. And Q is me. Q is the best thing that has ever happened to you. That's basically what it seems like Sue is going through right now. She is now that woman explaining to the world that she alone understands the true nature of things. But she was just as convincing the first time she thought she understood the true nature of things. I am convinced I am right, she says. Well, she was convinced she was right before, too. How are any of us sure that we are right? We can't be. But in moments of heightened life, in you know, life's heightened moments, we, we sometimes need to see things more sh- with more certainty than the situation merits because we need a path forward. And so we're just looking for any signs that the path we are on is the correct path, no matter how faint. And then we, 
extrapolate that those signs are leading us the correct way. They walked along a few more steps till they were outside the building and she had returned the key. Can this be the girl, said Jude when she came back, feeling a slight renewal of elasticity now that he was in the open street. Can this be the girl who brought the pagan deities into this most Christian city? Remember, she bought the naked statues. Who mimicked Miss Fontover when she crushed them with her heel, quoted Gibbon and Shelley and Mill. Where are dear Apollo and dear Venus now? Oh, don't. Don't be so cruel to me, Jude. And I so unhappy, she sobbed. I can't bear it. I was in error. I cannot reason with you. I was wrong, proud in my own conceit. Arabella's coming was the finish. Don't satirize me. It cuts like a knife. He flung his arms round her and kissed her passionately there in the silent street before she could hinder him. They went on till they came to a little coffee house. Jude, she said with suppressed tears, would you mind getting a lodging here? (laughs) So she's kicking him out of the house now on top of everything else. She's saying, you're not my husband. I can't sleep under the same roof with you. I will, if, if you really wish, but do you? Let me go to our door and understand you. He went and conducted her in. She said she wanted no supper and went in the dark upstairs and struck a light. Turning, she found that Jude had followed her and was standing at their chamber door. She went to him, put her hand in his, and said, Good night. But Sue, don't we live here? You said you would do as I wished. Yes, very well. Perhaps it was wrong of me to argue distastefully as I have done. Perhaps, as we couldn't conscientiously marry at first in the old-fashioned way we ought to have parted, perhaps the world is not illuminated enough for such experiments as ours. Who were we to think we could act as pioneers? I am glad you see that much at any rate. I never deliberately meant to do as I did. I slipped into my false position through jealousy and agitation. But surely through love, you loved me. Yes, but I wanted to let it stop there and go on always as mere lovers until. But people in love couldn't live forever like that. Women could. Men can't because they won't. An average woman is in this superior to an average man, that she never instigates, only responds. We ought to have lived in mental communion and no more. So she's saying, if only we just could have loved each other, been lovers, meaning in love, but with, but not in the modern sense of the word. In the modern sense of the word, being lovers means, you know, you do it. She's saying, if only we just could have communed mentally as essentially platonic, uh, the the platonic ideal of lovers to be in love, but to do it from a distance. It is, she's not wrong. She is, it is what she had asked for from the very beginning with him. And she says, women can do this, but men can't. And she is saying that women never instigate, they only respond. Well, of course, we know that's nonsense because Arabella instigated. 
Arabella was the instigator in that relationship. And this gets back to my theory of Sue's sexuality, that Sue was and remains a lesbian, which would explain why she says to Jude, you don't know how bad I am. And in that sense, he wouldn't. He wouldn't know because she wouldn't even know. Really, she wouldn't put a name to it, but she would know that she wasn't like the other girls. But she has these stirrings in her that are separate and apart from her feelings for Jude. So yes, she can love him. And perhaps it is in that explanation, to return to it, which would explain why she feels so much guilt, because she feels herself to be unnatural. And so she has betrayed her husband. She has betrayed Jude in her feelings. She has betrayed herself by consenting to have sex ultimately with Jude and to produce these other children. And she has betrayed those children because of the fate visited upon them. Look, the more I speak extemporaneously about this theory here, the more I like it. And he says, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the last episode, he says how she's the least sensual person he's ever met. And we would understand perhaps, if that were the cause of it. So I don't know, you know, but I'm going to take another break. And we're back. Let's wrap up. Just going back a minute, Jude says, I was the unhappy cause of the change, as I have said before, well, as you will. But human nature can't help being itself. Oh, yes, that's just what it has to learn. Self-mastery. I repeat, if either were to blame, it was not you, but I. No, it was I. Your wickedness was only the natural man's desire to possess the woman. Mine was not the reciprocal wish till envy stimulated me to oust Arabella. Right, right, Sue, that makes sense. She would never have done it with him, except that Arabella showed up again and she got jealous and she was like, fine, take me, dude, take me. I had thought I ought in charity to let you approach me, that it was damnably selfish to torture you as I did my other friend, remember the young guy who died, but I shouldn't have given way if you hadn't broken me down by making me fear you would go back to her. But don't let us say any more about it. Jude, will you leave me to myself now? Yes, but Sue, my wife as you are, he burst out. My old reproach to you was, after all, a true one. You have never loved me as I love you. Never, never. Yours is not a passionate heart. Your heart does not burn in a flame. You are, upon the whole, a sort of fay or sprite, not a woman. At first I did not love you, Jude, that I own. When I first knew you, I merely wanted you to love me. I did not exactly flirt with you, but that inborn craving which undermines some women's morals almost more than unbridled passion, the craving to attract and captivate, regardless of the injury it may do the man, was in me. 
and when I found I had caught you, I was frightened. And then, I don't know how it was, I couldn't bear to let you go, possibly to Arabella again, and so I got to love you, Jude. But you see, however fondly it ended, it began in the selfish and cruel wish to make your heart ache for me without letting mine ache for you. And now you add to your cruelty by leaving me. Ah, yes. The further I flounder, the more harm I do. Oh, Sue, said he, with a sudden sense of his own danger, do not do an immoral thing for moral reasons. You have been my social salvation. Stay with me for humanity's sake. You know what a weak fellow I am. My two arch enemies you know. My weakness for womankind and my impulse to strong liquor. Don't abandon me to them, Sue, to save your own soul only. They have been kept entirely at a distance since you became my guardian angel. Since I have had you, I have been able to go into any temptations of the sort without risk. Isn't my safety worth a little sacrifice of dogmatic principle? I am in terror, lest, if you leave me, it will be with me another case of the pig that was washed, turning back to his wallowing in the mire. So... Interesting, interesting turn of phrase from Jude. First of all, he's being slightly disingenuous or maybe more than slightly disingenuous. Yes, he got drunk a couple times. Yes, he likes women, I guess, but he was never a lech. But he's trying to guilt her now. Having, having lost the argument, he's now trying to guilt her. He's saying, if you leave me, I will die and you will be the cause of my death. But interestingly, he says it will be with me another case of the pig that was washed, turning back to his wallowing in the mire. So the pig, as you remember from when he was with Arabella, was a kind of carnal animal. It was the flesh made real, you know, the spirit, the spirit of the flesh made real. And he's saying, don't make me become again that flesh that 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 wanting flesh since i have been with you i have been elevated out of the mire but if you leave me i will become that pig again and we know what happened to the pig don't we got its throat slit by who jude sue burst out weeping oh but you must not jude you won't i'll pray for you night and day well never mind don't grieve said jude generously I did suffer, God knows, about you at that time, and now I suffer again, but perhaps not so much as you. The woman mostly gets the worst of it in the long run. She does, unless she is absolutely worthless and contemptible, and this one is not that anyhow. Sue drew a nervous breath or two. She is, I fear. Now, Jude... Good night, please. I mustn't stay, not just once more, as it has been so many times. Oh, Sue, my wife, why not? No, no, not wife. I am in your hands, Jude. Don't tempt me back now I have advanced so far. Very well. I do your bidding. I owe that to you, darling, in penance for how I overruled it at the first time. My God, how selfish I was. Perhaps, 
perhaps I spoilt one of the highest and purest loves that ever existed between man and woman. Then let the veil of our temple be rent in two from this hour. And he's quoting something. I think it's the Bible. I don't know. It's footnote 58. Let's see what he's quoting. As at the crucifixion, in Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. That's from Mark. He went to the bed, removed one of the pair of pillows thereon, and flung it to the floor. She looked at him, and bending over the bed rail, wept, silently. You don't see that it is a matter of conscience with me and not a dislike to you, she brokenly murmured. Dislike to you, but I can't say any more. It breaks my heart. It will be undoing all I have begun, Jude. Good night. Good night, he said, and turned to go. Oh, but you shall kiss me, said she, starting up. I can't bear. I mean, Sue, come on. This is the same game that she has always played. I don't love you. I don't love you. I don't love you. But do you love me? Will you? Will you just show me that you love me? That you are not mad at me? Well, you know what? We're mad at you. Okay, let him be mad at you. Let him be upset. Let him be distraught. Don't make him kiss you. Because, you know, it's bad. In this moment, he shouldn't kiss her. He clasped her and kissed her weeping face as he had scarcely ever done before. And they remained in silence till she said goodbye, goodbye. And then gently pressing him away, she got free trying to mitigate the sadness by saying, we'll be dear friends just the same, Jude, won't we? And we'll see each other sometimes, yes, and forget all this and try to be as we were long ago. Jude did not permit himself to speak, but turned and descended the stairs. End of chapter three. Well, yes, we know he is descending the stairs. We know that that descent will not and once Sue goes back to Philatim, the descent will be evermore. Will it be to woman? Will it be to drink? We cannot say. But we know that Jude's life is over, or certainly his happiness is over. He will not meet another Sue. There will be no more love in Jude's life, neither spousal love nor paternal love nor any of the other kinds of love one may have. There certainly won't be a, uh, a love of faith. He can't go back to the church. He can't, he's been, everything has been taken from him. That which he has not abandoned has been stolen. Jack is asleep on the throne, on the reading throne. It's almost as if he hasn't been paying attention at all. Jack, Jack. Jack, Jack, did you like that episode? He's stirring now. I have awoken him. And you may say, well, that's me. You woke him up. Well, fuck him. You know, I did a good job reading today. And he's just sitting there with his eyes closed, almost as if he doesn't care. So, you know, to hell with you, Jack, Jack, to hell with you. He doesn't care. I have descended myself now into a vague depression, having read all that, having my dog ignore me. And knowing that I have things to do for the rest of the day, which, you know, I'm not looking forward to that much. Although, perhaps I will have some pizza. And with that, I wish you adieu.
Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com. And be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you've heard, please... Write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like what you've heard, take it up with Thomas Hardy. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, and you would, email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black.